Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today, we again wander west, stopping just before the Valley of Death to visit a town known for installment art, a gold rush, and rattlesnake residence. About 120 miles northwest of Las Vegas, Nevada, at the edge of Death Valley National Park, sits a once thriving mining town. It only lasted for about six years before things started to close down and folks started to move away. Within 18 years, no one was left in the town. The name of this town was once called Bullfrog. Today, it is known as Rhyolite. The town got its start in 1904 when gold was discovered by two men, Frank Harris, who went by Shorty, and Ernest L. Cross, who went by just Ed. Shorty was one of the most well-known prospectors of Death Valley, and he was also one of the best around at drinking. Shorty was traveling in the area with his five donkeys and months worth of supplies. He ran into Ed, who had been waiting at the Keen Wonder Mine for his partner to come back. Could you imagine your buddy just leaves you there and I went back to stay here and hang out and have something assayed or yeah. something? You got to watch your claim, watch the donkeys. Okay, go get some supplies. It was yeah. common for a partner to stay back. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Well, Ed told Shorty that he was running low on supplies, and he had no idea when his partner would come back. He asked Shorty if he could come along with him, and the two of them set off. They arrived at Buck Springs Pass and set up camp. Do you think he left a note? (laughs) Yeah. There's a note on a rock. Yeah, that's true. Dear mining partner, (laughs) I left with this other guy. (laughs) What if you like came back and there's nothing there and you're like thinking they died or something no. or yeah, <laughs> I guess that would be the polite thing to do. Would be leave a note. Hey, I abandoned you and the mine out here in this general, I don't know, 400 mile area <laughs> of Death Valley. <laughs> well, the following morning, Ed was cooking breakfast and Shorty went off to find his donkeys. He lost his asses. Uh, the head wandered off in the night. While out searching for the men, he tripped on a rock. As he was getting up, he noticed the rocks around him were full of gold. This is kind of like the same story of how Tonopah was found. I think this is how so many of them are found. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid donkeys. Yep, jackasses. (laughs) Well, he yelled for Ed to come take a look, and the two men rushed to get a sample. They headed about 70 miles north to Goldfield, where they were told the sample was worth $3,000 per ton. Which is just over $100,000 today, so that's a good find for these guys. That's huge, really, because 3000 a ton is a lot. Yeah. And some of the mines were pulling $5 a ton. Yeah. You know, so this is just rich. Mm-hmm. Well, Shorty went to the local saloons and started telling everyone about his find. Always a good idea. Yep. He spent an entire week doing nothing but drinking. Also a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) And he ended up selling out his find and a mule to a man named J.E. McGallard for $1,000. Which is just over 33 grand today. Which isn't even what the ton, like the amount of money that came out of the sample. Well, it was $3,000 a ton. Yeah. So that'd be 33 or 10 tons worth, 11 tons worth. Yeah. I mean, you at least say I want $1,500. Yeah. 
quick money. Like, <laughs> I don't even have to do any work and I've got 33 grand. Yeah, I guess. Well, Ed, on the other hand, was the smart one in the group. He was working on lining up a cell for the mining rights. Ed and McGallard partnered together to form the original Bullfrog Mine. And then he later sold his shares for $125,000. Which would be just over four million bucks today. So he la- he made a lot more money than Shorty did. <laughs> yeah, that's a little more reasonable. I would take that. It's like I could retire on four million bucks. Yeah. So that's yeah. fine. Well, he and his wife moved to Escondido, California, where they lived on a large ranch and retired there. So he lived out what I would feel like a happy life. Mm-hmm. I'm buying property out in California, not knowing, but it was a good investment. So. Yeah. Well, with the new discovery of gold, hundreds of men rushed to the area to try and make some money. Several mining camps started to pop up in the area with names like Bullfrog, Jumpertown, Leadfield, Amargosa, and Gold Center. But the one town that did it right and survived the longest was Rhyolite. In 1905, or as we like to say in the old days, in Ot 5. You kept saying that last night. Yeah, like, what are you talking I'm about? I'm going to keep saying it again, too, because it's old-timey. It's fun. In Ot 5, four men by the names of Frank Bush, Percy Stanley, C.H. Elliott, and A.G. Cushman joined together. They owned a claim in the area and felt they could do better at promoting a town rather than work in the mines. Again, another thing we see very common of people opening supply stores for the miners and making mm-hmm. more money off of that than the miners are making. Mining the miners, yeah. as they say. <laughs> yeah. Well, they laid out 36 blocks. Initially, lots were given away to miners to get the camp started, but by February of Op 5, they were selling for 50 bucks a lot. Which is about $1,700 today. I'd pay $1,700 today for a lot right now. Yeah, I don't there. think you couldn't Rhyolite. <laughs> yeah. uh, they chose Rhyolite as the name of the town because of all the green rock in the area. You know, you can't even buy a burial plot for under two grand, it no. seems, not in town. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, soon all the smaller towns in the area became abandoned and everyone moved to Rhyolite. The first major issue the town faced was supplying water. It's a big issue. Yeah. Well, there was no spring or river nearby. They were living in the desert. Death Valley area. Yeah. There was roughly 2,000 people living in the area, and they needed to figure something out. Water was being shipped into town in barrels with a cost of 2 to $5 a barrel. Which ranges between 68 to 170 bucks a barrel today. Which is a lot, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. But I guess they're paying for also the fees to get it there. So Yeah, they have to wagon it in, feeding yeah. horses all night. Well, the water was then stored in large tanks above the city, and the town soon had three major water companies when they built pipelines to bring water into the area. There was a $15 fee to hook the water up. Which would be just over 500 bucks. And they were billed one cent per gallon. Which is about 34 cents, which I feel like is probably what you pay at Walmart for their UV filtered thing, not... Oh, where you take the big jugs in and fill it up? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not a gallon of swampy brackish <laughs> the horse shit filled Car- stream water. Carried there in lead-lined pipes. And <laughs> <laughs> well, by spring of Op 5, the town had three stage lines bringing in supplies. They even had the first auto stage called the Tonopah and Goldfield Auto Company. The stage line brought mail in from Goldfield, but the service was unreliable in the beginning as all mail carrying was unreliable in the beginning. Yeah. The first postmaster in town was an 18-year-old gal named Anna B. Moore. 
and her husband, Joe, was her assistant. I know I try to find more about her and how she even got that position because I thought, well, first of all, it's a woman. And mm. second of all, she's 18. Yeah, her dad may have been a postman somewhere else or her mom as well. For that matter, a lot of women were postmasters back then. Yeah. So maybe she grew up knowing how to do all that and said, hey, I know how to do this. Yeah, that's Give me true. the job. Well, the first post office was opened in a 10-foot by 12-foot tent on Golden Street. By May, the town received its first news issue from the Rhyolite Herald, and it was published by Earl R. Clemens. In 1906, the town folk got together and decided that a school was needed for the children. That would be odd six for those of you that <laughs> don't understand the 19 part. <laughs> the modern yeah. wordage. Yeah. A wood building was quickly thrown together, and they now had a location for the 90 kids in town to go to school. By May that same year, there was almost 250 kids going to school. So that's how quickly this town was growing. Tripled in children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I I would think that some of these families moving in would have like maybe two, max three kids. Hmm. I would think. So that would be why the kids may be growing faster than the adults. But that's the families. There's mm -hmm. way more single men that are coming into mine. Yeah. Yeah, I read uh, one news article that said there was like, at one point, there was, you know, 5,000 residents. What would you say, like call those that like are permanent residents? Mm -hmm. And then there's up to 5,000 to 6,000 transients coming into town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's a lot of people coming through this town. No. In September, the schoolhouse was blown down by heavy winds and the kids had to go to school at the county hospital which I thought was funny. Mm -hmm. So they went there until a new building could co be completed. The city set aside $420,000 for a new school. And in January 1909, a new concrete structure was completed. So that four hundred and twenty grand would be about $13.6 million today. Quite the fancy school. Yeah. On December 14th of 06, the Las Vegas and Tonopah Railroad sent the first passenger train into Rhyolite. A large rail depot was built in the heart of town, and the building is still there today. The Tonopah and Tidewater Railroad arrived in town in Ot 6 as well, but they passed through the outskirts of town. The trains would come into town loaded with passengers and supplies and head back out of town with ore to be processed. On June 18th of Ot 7, a third rail line arrived into town called the Bullfrog and Goldfield. So pretty impressive for the town to have three railroad companies coming into town. Yeah, and it's a mining town. Not They're not bringing cattle and that sort of a thing. Yeah, that's true. They're not. You couldn't really graze cattle in that area. There's, There's nothing, nothing there. There's nothing for me. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Well, by the end of 1906, Rhyolite was a fully functioning town with a newspaper, post office, several hotels and stores. An ice plant. I thought that was fun. It's like, where would you store the ice? I guess underground, right? Yeah. Yep. They would dig down. It would be um, cooler anyway. Yeah. But then they're still transporting the ice from afar. Mm -hmm. So you probably started with a giant brick and ended up with this tiny little thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, there were several water companies, two electric plants, machine shop, and a miners union hospital. They had a stock exchange and a board of trade. Even though the town was becoming more and more civilized, materials were still scarce to come by or very expensive. There was no trees to go and cut down, so everything was shipped in. Mm -hmm. No and Amazon. <laughs> no, not yet. Mm -hmm. In 1906, a saloon owner by the name of Tom Kelly had the 
greatest idea. He used some 50,000 beer, whiskey, soda, and medicine bottles to build himself a house. (laughs) It took him six months to complete, but now 76-year-old Tom had a place to live. And this kind of reminds me of the buildings that we saw in Thunder Mountain. Remember those? Mm Mm-hmm. Which we talked about that in our first episode. Yeah. yeah. If you haven't heard that, take a listen. <laughs> Go back in the archives, as it were. Yeah. Be kind to us. It was our first episode. So There is that. <laughs> it's actually still our highest, uh, most listened to episode. Is it? Mm-hmm. That's funny. Well, because everybody always goes to number one to start listening, right? Right. Well, by the following year, they had concrete sidewalks, telephone lines, some 400 streetlight poles banks, a police force, a fire department, and even an opera house. Bob Montgomery, who owned the Montgomery Shoshone mine, had a mill built. It was able to handle 300 tons of ore every day. He boasted he could take $10,000 a day in ore from the mine. Which is just over $300,000. In today's monies. (laughs) Well, around this time, roughly 10,000 people were living in Rhyolite. There's um, pictures you can find online of the old mill that he built. Mm -hmm. And this thing was huge. And he had built it on like several layers of the mountainside. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're crushing it as they're bringing it out of the Yeah. I thought, well, that's pretty impressive for them. One, to be able to build that thing so quickly. Mm -hmm. But then two, it's not there now. So they would have maybe moved it somewhere else. Yeah, they probably tore it down and salvaged it. But it, it's pretty cool to see him. So loud. And it's just kind of in that little goalie. Oh, the machine for, going all day? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it probably and was if there were several of them, mm-hmm. they would be running it 24 hours a day and just <laughs> constantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine them firing that thing up for the first time and you're like, everybody in town, what? Uh-huh. What? <laughs> I'm sure most of the town was there to see it happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, crime soon became an issue in this growing town. One of the first murders in town was on May 18, 1906. According to the Reno Gazette Journal, on May 19, 1906, Steve O'Brien, who was a miner in town, shot and killed his wife. It states that O'Brien had been on bad terms with his family for some time, and his wife was about to proceed to get a divorce. He entered the house today and, after a few heated words, shot his wife in the face. She was carried to a drugstore where she died. It continues on saying, Deputy Sheriff McDonald and Justice of the Peace John Donnelly rushed to the scene. As O'Brien was attempting to make his escape, carrying a pistol in one hand and a miner's candle in the other, Deputy Sheriff McDonald arrived and, in the melee, O'Brien stabbed him just below the heart with the short end of the miner's candlestick just breaking the skin. When MacDonald ordered O'Brien to drop the pistol and candlestick, he refused and made an effort to shoot. MacDonald anticipated him and shot him through the heart. O'Brien dropped dead in his tracks. Those that were arrested and sent to jail had to be transported to a jail in Bullfrog. The cost to store them in was $15 a day plus a fee to get them in there. So that would be about 475 bucks a day today. Yeah, that's a lot of money to be paying to store a convict. <laughs> yeah, most people aren't earning that kind of money to be paying that kind of money. Yeah, so, yeah, so the town soon began to see a need for a jail. Mm-hmm. In March 1907, the jail was built out of concrete with four still cells in the back of the building. One man that did spend time in the new jail was Llewellyn Felker, also known as Fred Skinner. Like most mining towns, Rhyolite had a red light district. 
the gals were separated from the town and were not allowed to leave their area. Very common again. Mm -hmm. On the morning of January 3rd, 1908, or (laughs) the police entered an adobe cabin where they found the body of 20-year-old Mona Bell. She'd been shot three times in the back with one bullet hitting her in the heart, killing her instantly. The police began an investigation and soon discovered that Mona had been shot and killed by her boyfriend of eight months, Fred Skinner. Fred tried to say he killed her in self-defense, that she was trying to shoot him because he told her he was going to leave her. Fred tried to say that Mona did not want him to go to Colorado to be with his wife, and if she couldn't have him, no one could. Several witnesses testified they had seen Fred beat her. Byron Demings stated that when he was at the Mission Bar with Mona and Fred the last night they were seen together, he witnessed Fred beating her. Demings suggested Fred should not be so rough on her, and Fred responded, Fuck her. She's used to that. She. <laughs> he continued on saying that he had to beat her regularly as she was used to it. He also stated that the fellow he got her from beat her every day. The fellow he got her from. (laughs) (laughs) Traded a pint of beer. (laughs) The undertaker, Otto Bessagalupi. I'm so glad you had to say his last name. (laughs) (laughs) He got on the stand and talked about how her body was covered in bruises and cuts, as well as a black eye. He also said that some of the bruises looked to be older, as they were yellow. The doctor that examined Fred when he was arrested testified that the wounds he received looked to be wounds made by himself, and that he believed they didn't come from Mona. Fred was looking at receiving the death sentence, but instead, on March 8th of 08, he was sentenced to life in prison. This whole court proceeding was fairly well covered in the newspapers, because Mm. if I remember correctly, they were saying it was like, one of the first like Supreme Court hearings that they were going to hear wow. in that area. And so it was kind of a big deal. Like, how is the first one going to be handled, you know? Right. Well, on an appeal in 1910, his sentence was reduced to 50 years. 13 years later, on November 15th, 1923, he was released on parole. But Fred was arrested again in October 1931 for violation of the prohibition laws in Las Vegas when he was caught bootlegging. He was sentenced to one year, but it was soon found out that the name he gave them was a fake, and he was looking at possibly having to go back to jail to finish out his 50-year sentence, but the courts allowed him to go free on one condition, (laughs) which seemed to be common back then. Mm -hmm. He had to leave the state and go live with his brother, and I think he went to Washington. You get from here. (laughs) But while Rhyolite was continuing to build its city, the rest of the nation was starting to crumble. The stock market prices were dropping and investors were pulling out of everything. Several of the smaller mines began to close down, but the real blow to the town came late in A8. And I don't know if Rhyolite was late at receiving the news of the nation or if they just kind of believed that they would be able to survive what was coming. But the town continued to grow and improve. It was crazy. Yeah. In January of A8, the John S. Cook Bank was completed and it was the finest bank in town. The building was three stories tall, and the walls were made of poured concrete. Inside the bank was a marble staircase with mahogany accents. It was also built with modern conveniences like electric lights and indoor plumbing. In July, the post office moved into the basement of the bank. Everything's moving on up. Yep, yep. 
In September 1907, the Las Vegas and Tonopah Railroad began construction on a major depot. It was constructed of concrete blocks with a solid concrete foundation. The building is in the Mission Revival style, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. On the east side of the building was the gentleman's waiting area, and on the west side was the ladies' waiting area. And I like to picture the ladies like in there getting their hair done and their nails painted as they're waiting for the train. <laughs> and the men are over there smoking cigars and drinking whiskey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the ticket office was located in the center of the building. Construction was completed in June 1908 with a final cost of $130,000. Which is just over $4.2 million today. But this was all too little, too late for the town. Well, with the completion of the rail depot, they soon saw more folks were leaving town than coming in. The following year, the railroad started to see a decline, and by 1919, the tracks were removed and taken elsewhere. By the end of Ot 9, the city's population was less than a 1,000 folks. In 1910, the bank was closed down, and John Cook had sold off all the building's fixtures. Do you see a... uh, correlation here between the end of the aught years as <laughs> soon as you can no longer say aught six aught nine everything just took a shit <laughs> is that Nin- how it works 1910 yeah it's like oh 1910 how boring is that let's close the bank get the mm-hmm. fuck out of here <laughs> things were slowing down at the montgomery shoshone mill as well with roughly only two hundred and forty six thousand six hundred and sixty one dollars roughly yeah roughly down to the dollar <laughs> Coming out of the mine. (laughs) They didn't put the pennies in there. I mean, come on. Which that's just over $7.7 million today. On March 14th of 1911, it was decided that the mine was to be closed down. It was one of the largest producing mines in town with a gross of two million bucks. Almost $63 million today. And a net of about $1.5 million. Which is just over $47 million. Good job, guys. Yeah, twenty operating under 25% operating cost. Yeah. For a mine that you have to import everything, that's pretty good, I think. Mm-hmm. Back from the last time I was mining, mining yeah, yeah, in the early aughts. <laughs> in the 20 aughts, <laughs> not the 19 aughts. <laughs> yeah. Well, two weeks after the mine closed down, the Rhyolite Herald published its last issue. The post office closed in November of 1913, and the last train to leave town was in July of 1914. The following year, the town had a population of 20. From (laughs) 10,000. With no railroad, no post office, and hardly anyone living in the town, the city shut down the water and power, which would make sense. Why keep it running and maintaining it for 20 people? Mm -hmm. The few people living in town tried to remain. They felt like there was going to be another boom. Mm -hmm. But by 1920, there were only 14 people living there. The record searchlight reported on the town on February 2nd, 1921, stating, Rhyolite, the once thriving center of the bullfrog mining boom of 14 years ago, has taken its place among the ghost towns of the West. And Mrs. Dyer, proprietor of the Rhyolite Hotel, and her son are the only permanent residents. The height of its prosperity, Rhyolite claimed a population of between seven and 8,000 and was the center of a thriving region. Several buildings and substantial homes were constructed, with the decline of the Montgomery Shoshone and other mines controlled by the Schwab steel interest. The prosperity of Rhyolite disappeared, and now the wolves howl where once there was life and activity. 
And you even said, I don't think there would have been wolves it's in probably that Probably coyotes. Yeah. <laughs> coyotes yipping. Well, the last person in Rhyolite was J.D. Lorraine, an aged Frenchman. I did not write that. I found that in the news article. <laughs> Who was at the age of 92, passed away in 1923, leaving the town a complete ghost town. That same year, the railroad station was auctioned off. Most of the smaller buildings had been removed to Beatty or other communities, like the wood ones that they could easily move. Mm, but just the, pick them up and carry them. Yeah. And we even read about a church being moved in one of the towns we had visited, and I can't remember where. Mm. But this this building was too large to move, so it, it stayed. Mm-hmm. In February, Mrs. Foss won the auction for the large Las Vegas and Tonopah Railroad Station for a whopping 205 bucks. Which is nearly $3,600 today. Yeah, she states. The old station will be kept as a memorial to the gallant men who established Rhyolite at the very threshold of Death Valley. With Rhyolite now an official ghost town, people would come to visit and see what was left of a once thriving town in Death Valley. More people were coming to town, and it soon started to turn into a tourist attraction. Paramount Pictures discovered the bottle house and worked at restoring it. They added a new roof and got it ready to be used in a 1925 film. They did a couple other movies there. Hmm. They used the John S. Cook Bank in one of the movies, and they said that the that kind of helped with the destruction of the building. Mm-hmm. I'm so, sure. Yeah. Well, after they completed the filming, the house was given to the Beatty Improvement Association to maintain it as a historical site. The house was eventually leased to Louis J. Murphy, who opened it as a museum until he passed away in 1956. Mr. and Mrs. Tommy Thompson lived in the house and continued to run a museum and relic shop out of it. After the Thompsons passed away, their son Evan maintained it for a while until he moved out. Now the house is part of the National Park Services. You can still see the house and look through the windows, but we couldn't find anything saying they allow anyone inside. The house is a treat to walk around and look at all the bottles. It's way cool. Mm -hmm. If you look closely, you'll see a large percentage of the bottles are champagne bottles. That was the town's drink of choice, as they felt that beer was a little too generic for such an upscale town. (laughs) Well, next to the house, someone has gone and built a small replica of what one of the streets in town looked like. All the buildings look to be made of cement, wood, and pieces of colored glass. Yeah, they're cute. They're like maybe two feet tall. They're just these little, little, little street. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun. Well, Norman Westermoreland, who also went by Westmoreland, bought the depot in 1935. And according to the Reno Gazette Journal on September 20th, 1937... Moreland said that more than 10000 has been spent in converting the old depot into a modern entertainment spot. That ten grand would be about two hundred and seven grand today. On October first, nineteen thirty-seven, he opened it as the Rhyolite Ghost Casino. I like that name; that's mm. fun. On the main floor of the building was the drinking and gaming. Upstairs, he offered a different kind of entertainment. You know what he would have offered upstairs? Pray tell, girls. Girls. <laughs> the activity- what were they doing with the? Like, <laughs> we can't talk about that. Playing okay. cards, probably. Juggling. (laughs) The activities with the girls would take place in the ticket agent's quarters. Wes continued to operate the casino until he passed away on May 13th, 1947. And I did find where he was buried and I 
didn't put it in here. I wish I would have, but he didn't stay in Nevada. He was his body was sent somewhere else. So. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that he was considered an eccentric fella, and he had a <laughs> uh, a taste for girls yes. and the entertainments they provide. Yes, <laughs> and that he had covered the inside of this building with nude photos. Yeah, I found a picture of his bar and mm. the bar back where a mirror usually would go in an old bar back was just pictures after pictures of pictures of half naked women, women in swimming suits, full nude women. <laughs> <laughs> they were just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And they said even though he was a diabetic and he didn't drink, he always kept a well-stocked bar. <laughs> All the finest. <laughs> yep. <laughs> What's his sister, Frederica Heiser, inherited his property after he passed away. In 1953, she and her husband spent their retired years living in Rayola and running a museum out of the train station. As visitors would stop by to see what remained of the town, they were happy to talk about things they remembered. Stories of Mona Bell would come up from time to time, and Frederica soon found that people loved to hear about her. As it happens with storytelling, the tale tends to get more and more elaborate as it is repeated. Frederica one day placed a white cross with a wire fence around it and painted Mona's name on it. She would tell folks the story of Mona and then point them in the direction, telling them that is where she's buried. Which is in the area of where she was murdered. Sure. But yeah. So what truly happened to Mona? I don't know. <laughs> Today, if you visit Rhyolite and look out the window of the prison, you will see a white cross in the distance surrounded by a wire fence. And so it's always kind of the thing, the story w went that uh, they put Mona there. They, the town folks buried Mona there so that when Fred was in prison, he could look out the window and see her, mm -hmm. which is not true. Remember your crime. Yes. Well, the name on the cross reads Isabella Hankins, a.k.a. Mona Bell. Around the cross, you will find mementos like whiskey bottles, beads, and high heels. But Mona Bell's not buried there. Oh. After Mona passed away, the police went through her trunk and found a stack of letters and pictures. Inside the pile, they found a letter from her mother, Carrie Peterman. Mona had been carrying that letter with her as she moved from one mining camp to another. Well, it was soon discovered that her real name was Sarah Sadie Isabella Peterman, and that she was married to Clinton Columbus Heskett. The two of them had eloped in Nebraska and then moved to Arrowhead, Colorado. They hadn't even been married for a year before Fred convinced her to leave her husband. Fred, who was a married man, took Sadie to Nevada and talked her into becoming a working gal. He wanted her to make him some money so that he didn't have to work. He wanted to be her pimp. <laughs> mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Clinton spent 1500 bucks looking for the two of them, but it was difficult to track him down. Which is roughly $20,000 today. Wow. Fred changed his last name to Davis, and Sadie took on the name Mona Bell. When it was discovered that Mona was married, the police contacted Clinton to inform him of the unfortunate news. He arrived in Rhyolite a few days after the murder and identified the body as Sadie. Clinton accompanied Sadie back to Ballard, Washington, where her mother was living. Sadie's body was laid to rest at the Crown Hill Cemetery in a plot purchased by her father, Emery. I read one article that states the family did not place a headstone for her, but I discovered that in the Crown Hill Cemetery, there is a headstone for a Sadie Haskett. The birthday is 1886, which is wrong. She was actually born on October 2nd, 1887, 
and the death date is listed as 1907, which is wrong also. I thought that maybe the family wanted to keep her hidden, and that's why the name on it says Sadie, and it only has her married name on it. But it was actually Sadie's niece that had the headstone placed in 1980. So I think maybe she might have gotten some of the information wrong. Mm-hmm. And I also found out that her parents aren't even in the same cemetery as her, which again kind of leads me to believe they were trying to distance themselves from her. Mm-hmm. Her family actually had really close ties to the Christian Science Church, and they possibly didn't want this to taint their name. Sure. Well, just before you get into town, off the road a bit, you'll find the Bullfrog Rhyolite Cemetery. Use your GPS because it's nothing there is taller than the sagebrush. <laughs> yeah, and you can't see it from a distance. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, you can see the town from the cemetery, but you can't see the cemetery really from the town. Yeah. <laughs> uh, many of the headstones have not survived the weather, but there are still a few that remain. We made sure to stop there and pay our respect to those that lost their lives while living in the area or those that had a deeply rooted connection to the town that even after it was a ghost town, they still wanted to be buried there. One of those folks laid to rest in the cemetery is John Trumbull Overbury. He played a major role in the start of the town when he erected the Overbury building. It was the first three-story steam-heated brick building in town. And we couldn't find a marker for him. Sadly, it may have weathered away. So. Yeah. They used wood a lot back then. Mm -hmm. Well, today, if you visit Rhyolite, you can see the remains of the town in its glory days. Some of the walls of the Cook Bank building are still standing. The storefront of the Porter Brothers store is still standing, but the side walls are falling in and there is no back wall to support it. So eventually that will go away too. Mm -hmm. Construction for the building began in 1906 when Hiram and Lyman Porter needed a bigger location. When the two of them arrived in town, they set up shop in a tent in 1905. It took them four months to complete, and the final cost of it was $10,000. It was about thirty-four grand today. Their store was the largest employer in town, aside from the mines. I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And the store closed in 1910 when the town started to fail. And didn't you say they used to do big Christmas displays and all uh, that? Yeah. yeah. Which would be so fun to find, like, a 1906... Christmas display. Right. Well, most of the walls are left of the schoolhouse as well as the foundation. The building was completed in 09. It was a two-story concrete brick schoolhouse. The first floor was divided into three classrooms and a large hallway connected them. The second floor had one classroom as well as an auditorium. The roof had a galvanized Spanish tile complete with a cupola and bell. It was said the school was fireproof and could be evacuated in two minutes if there was a fire. I wonder if they tested that. (laughs) Bring down 100 kids from the upstairs crashing into the kids and the downstairs trying to run out of the building. (laughs) It might take more than two minutes. Well, and as I was thinking of that, I wondered if this was the same around the same time that that big fire happened in Chicago at that theater where people were trapped inside. Mm. Um, I thought, I wonder if this is the same time. And that's what was like the inspiration of them being able to be like, hey, we built this big fireproof building that you can evacuate really quickly, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, likely. Well, the building was only used for a short while until 1911 when it closed down. Several families had moved away by then and the massive schoolhouse was actually never fully occupied with children. A few of the walls are still standing on the old gel building with windows still in place and the gel cells still intact. 
The door to the cells are closed and locked, and I wonder if someone still has the key because I want to go inside. I think it would be fun. Mm. <laughs> Remember when I told you about the one prison that they uh, lock you in and let you sleep there? I think it was the Deer Lodge prison. Mm-hmm. They could do that there. Yeah. That'd be scary. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Somebody would, though. <laughs> Well, there are a few wood buildings still standing with one building stating that it was one of the old houses that belonged to a working girl. But again, this could be one of the exaggerated stories. Yeah, Yeah, it's hard to say. It didn't look like a normal – it wasn't a traditional brothel or a crib Mm -hmm. type of thing, but it might have been her residence. Yeah. Hard to say. Yeah. Well, another popular spot to stop and visit while you're in town is the Goldwell Open Air Museum. The museum started in 1984 when sculptor Albert Sukolaski had his creation, The Last Supper, placed there. The sculpture depicted Christ and his disciples. They almost look like they're ghosts, kind of hooded, shrouded. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like plaster poured over wire. Very, very, very cool. Yeah. Well, over yeah. the years, several artists have created various other sculptures that are also on display there. Yeah, you can see a ghost figure trying to ride a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, there's also a mosaic couch that is not at all comfortable to sit on. <laughs> yeah, a metal statue of what looks to be a miner carrying a pickaxe and a penguin following him. Uh, there's a metal statue of an origami crane. Someone has also gone out and laid rocks in a spiral formation, which does not look awesome when you're standing next to it. But when you step away, you can see the spiral. So it's pretty cool. A lot of people will stand in the middle and then somebody will go off to the distance and then take a picture of them standing there in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even a statue of a lady that looks to be made out of blocks. What's that game that kids play nowadays? Is it like the... I hear him say Roblox and Minecraft. Minecraft. It looks like those little things. Hmm. Um, And she's painted pink and she has blonde hair that's all blocky looking. And then she has these square boobies that are like super pointy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's funny. (laughs) Yeah. We should have pictures of all this on the website. Yeah. Well, though there are no shops in Rhyolite open to visit, the town is still well worth a stop. Yeah, it was free for us to go inside, and we spent several hours wandering around. And you can also park your car and go for hikes in the area. Or if you're in a hurry, you can just kind of quickly drive through and then check things out. But if you do go, we suggest stopping and getting out to see the Open Air Museum because you'll find a lot of other little things around there that we didn't talk about. Mm. And we also suggest stopping at the cemetery. There are a few old wooden headstones left, and those are always a treat for us to see. Mm-hmm. And would encourage some proper footwear. There's signs posted all over to watch out for rattlesnakes. Yeah. Things like that. You're in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And I, the snakes I probably don't had flip flops on. I'm <laughs> sure you did. <laughs> at best, socks and flip flops. <laughs> they don't keep away all the ants, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, there you have it, folks. Another one of our stops as we wander aimlessly through the deserts. Yes. So do you have one of your famous gypsy dad jokes for us? I do. I do. Are you so ready? I always ask you this. You're never ready and I do it anyways. No, this is is the only thing people actually listen to the podcast for is your joke. That's why we put them at the end. (laughs) To keep them here. Yeah. In anticipation of the magic you bring to the show. Yes. Well, I'll explain why I chose this joke after I tell you it. So, Oh. But I just wanted you. Do they call that burying the lead? I don't know what that means. Okay. 
<laughs> sure, you're smarter than I am, so yes. <laughs> well, I just want um, you guys to know that whoever stole my copy of Microsoft Office, I will find you. You have my word. <laughs> and I thought this was funny because <laughs> I know that people don't listen to this like as it comes out, so... It, even though it is like a little after New Year's that this is going to come out. We're recording on New Year's Eve. Yes. Yeah. So I thought it was funny because I don't know if you remember the whole Y2K thing and everybody was like panicking, like our computers are going to blow up. and <laughs> mm, Nothing's going to work. Mm -hmm. So, yes, in memory of New Year's, whoever stole my Microsoft, I will find you. <laughs> yes. Because you have my word. Yeah. Do you understand the joke? I do, because Microsoft Word. Okay. Just, <laughs> just making sure. Sometimes you don't get them until I have, like the next day. So I, yes, I it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, folks. Well, <laughs> that's how we're ending the – that's how we're starting the year is with that. Do you want another one? No, I think that's fine. Where does Batman go to the bathroom? I don't. I don't know where he goes to the bathroom. The bat room. <laughs> <laughs> you just pull that right out of your, my, right off the top of your head. Right out of my book. <laughs> right out your book. <laughs> wow. Well, happy New Year's, everybody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hope hope y'all had a, a merry Christmas holiday. Mm-hmm. Are you allowed to say Christmas? Happy holidays? Whatever. I say holidays because it just includes everything, right? You don't have to pick them all. You're just like, happy holidays. Yeah. I don't have time to remember what they all are. <laughs> so many of them. Well, thank you all so much for joining us again and uh, supporting the independent podcasting community, uh, which includes us here at the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. And Marley, thanks for – she's ready to go. She's up. Uh, <laughs> as always, if you want to stay up to date with us, if we're active at all, we're most active on the Instagram. <laughs> at Rebel at Large. Uh, we post photos of our adventures on the website. Rebelatlarge.com, where you'll also find links to our new merch store, which you put on a new shirt, didn't you? Two new shirts. Yeah, Yay. One I put up was a um, kind of a horror comic themed mm -hmm. logo and the other one i haven't put out on the facebook stuff yet maybe i'll do that today but it's uh retro oh yeah yeah as i'm going through my second of third my third life crises <laughs> this year <laughs> this year <laughs> the second and we're just ending the year there's still time yes let's see what tonight brings <laughs> yeah yeah so I, I built a designer retro one that's available on the web store Cool. As well. Well, you'll so. also find um, our Patreon if you want to help put fuel in our tanks for the adventures that we go on. Oh, and we were going to do some stuff from this episode, too. We had some newspaper articles that we were going to read. Mm -hmm. Yep. I uh, found a letter that Mona wrote to Fred. Well, he was in prison, right? Uh, no. Not obviously for a murder, but he was in jail for something. Yeah, he was in jail for something, and she wrote him a letter, and then they used it in the court case. And then I found another article about two guys that are buried in the cemetery. So if you want to hear about that stuff, then join our Patreon so you yeah. can find out more stuff. Did they sh kill each other? Don't give it away. Oh, well, these will be <laughs> on our Insider Series. So when we record them, they'll come out on both the Apple Insider Series things for those of you that subscribe to that mm -hmm. and for our Patreon supporters as yes. well. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Links in the show notes. Yes. And you'll also find our email address on our website if you guys want to get in touch with us, um, as well as links to our other social deals. So check us out. Yep. All right. We'll talk to you all here in a couple of weeks. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. About 20 miles northwest of Las Vegas, Nevada. It's about 120. (laughs) Kian Mine. Nope. Kian? Kian? Kian. They headed about 70 miles north to Goldfield. They headed about 70 miles north to Goldfield. Why can't I say Goldfield? (laughs) Goldfield. Goldfield? Goldfield? According to the Reno Gazette Journal on May 19th, 1906. So it was posted on May 19th, 1906. That's why I was like, that doesn't make sense. 13 years later, on March 15th, 1923, he was. It's November. Yeah, it is. In January of 08, 08, the John S. Cook Bank was completed. So we're spending money Mm -hmm. right in the middle of it. Start that all over because I just lost myself. In February, Miss Foss. Is that Mrs.? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that maybe the family wanted to keep her hidden, and that's why the name on it says Sadie, and it only has her maiden name, not her. Uh, what would that name be instead of your maiden name? Your married name? Oh, so the maiden name is wrong. Because the maiden name is your... What's the married name called? Your married name. Oh, so then...